0: Thank you for standing in the honor of the reading of God's Word this morning. We continue a preaching series entitled, What We Saw, Eyewitnesses of the Cross, in which we're taking a look at the stories of the people who were around Crucifixion Day, who were witnesses or parts of it. We've heard about the life of Barabbas, who was saved by Christ as a substitute in death. We've learned about Simon of Cyrene, who carried the crossbar of Christ up the hill of Calvary, and what he saw in that marvelous Lord that he followed. Today, we'll find ourselves at the foot of the cross as we see that event through the eyes of Mary, the mother of Jesus, and the apostle John. The account of their experience comes in the Gospel of John, written by John later from the moments that he stood there at the cross as an eyewitness. And I read it in your hearing this morning. John chapter 19, verses 25 to 27. Let us together hear the word of God. But standing by the cross of Jesus were his mother and his mother's sister, Mary, the wife of Clopas, and Mary Magdalene. When Jesus saw his mother and the disciple whom he loved standing nearby, he said to his mother, woman, behold your son. And then he said to the disciple, behold your mother. And from that hour, the disciple took her to his own home. This is God's perfect word, May it impact our hearts with eternal truth. Pray with me. Father, we come and thank you for all the things that you chose to include in our Bibles. There are mighty works and words of theology and deep teaching. But then, Lord, in the flow of it all, there are these human moments, But human moments that were placed there in the record for a purpose because they like all every other part of your word reveal the greatness and majesty of Jesus Christ and the power of what he can do in our lives if we trust him. So come over the preaching Lord as you've done through generations and here in this place. Come over passage and preacher. Let your word be seen for what it says and let its power break upon our hearts. We pray in Jesus name. Amen. Thank you for standing. You can be seated. Well, as we continue this series, uh, I want to begin this particular message by making an observation as a pastor of 30 years experience with so many lives, so many people moving into an understanding of faith. One of the things that I've observed is that people who particularly don't, yet know Christ, who are in adulthood, they uh, sometimes need some time to realize who Jesus really is before they trust him as Savior and Lord. There's time that's needed for them to hear the teaching of the Bible and to hear the testimony of other people that are Christians, to meditate on what it means to be a sinner and for what he did to be a Savior. It takes time most people need that. And in fact, sudden conversions among uh, people of age are kind of rare. It took some time in my life for me to truly understand what it meant for me to be a sinner and for Christ to do what he did in history on that cross. Now, this was certainly also true of the disciples. Interestingly enough, they had Jesus with them for three years in perfection the perfect teacher, the perfect preacher, the perfect counselor and friend. But right up till the end, the Bible tells us in the Gospels that they were mostly puzzled when Jesus taught. They were perplexed often by what he said. They became fearful as he predicted his death on the cross. It wasn't a comfort to them. It was a confusing and fearful thing. And as the day approached, they became even more filled with fear. We know that In Gethsemane in that early morning when Judas betrayed Jesus, all the disciples fled, every one of them, just as the scripture had prophesied and just as Jesus had told them they would do, they fled and they hid from the terror of the crucifixion and from the the Jewish authorities rather and the Romans too. And they hid in an upper room and just waited, not knowing what was really happening. They probably didn't fully understand and believe in Jesus. This is my preacher's opinion, fully and clearly until after he appeared on resurrection day. The Bible says in the days afterward, in the hours afterward, he appeared to them multiple times and he opened the scriptures to them and he showed them how everything that he had taught and everything that they had seen, the cross and the resurrection were part of the story that the Old Testament told them. And the Bible says their hearts burned within them and they came to know truly who Jesus was and what he had come to do. Now, I think this story of coming to know Jesus through experience and time may possibly have been true even of two of the people who knew Jesus the longest and the best his mother, who knew him the longest in human form, and the disciple John, who was the closest to him among the disciples. And that's where their story comes into play today, at the foot of the cross. Now, we can only speculate about some things happening in their lives. We won't know till they tell us the full story in heaven. But I think it's possible that they saw his greatness in the worst moment of the hours of the cross in such a way that it impacted them forever. And that's the story I want to invite you into today. So open your Bibles, whether you've got them on your lap and, and digitally, or you can watch the, the screen behind me for the verses, wherever you are, open them now to John chapter 19. And we're going to take a look at three things in this story. First of all, the people that they were. We need to get to know Mary and John to understand what might have been going on in their minds and hearts, why they were there. What God was up to. Secondly, we're going to take a look at the greatness of what they saw. This was a moment in which they saw Jesus Christ in his greatness in two tremendous ways. And finally, and thirdly, we're going to take a look at the difference that this can make today for us. For you, if you're considering Jesus and you don't yet know him, or for you as a disciple of Jesus. And you're seeking to follow him more closely. Those are the three steps in the story. First of all, the people that they were in Luke, pardon me, John 19 introduces them to us. He says in verse 25, that standing there on that terrible morning, as Jesus had been nailed to the cross and was well into his physical suffering and dying. There were a number of people that had come out of devotion to him. There were four women, reading backwards in verse 25, Mary Magdalene, whom we had come to know Jesus had saved out of a life of deep sin, and she'd been demonically possessed, and Jesus had delivered her. And then there was Mary, the wife of Clopas. We think that she was the mother of one of the disciples known as Alphaeus, also known as uh, the the son of Clopas, the and he was, he was named Alphaeus. So she was close to the disciples and had followed Jesus for a long time. Then Mary's, uh, uh, Mary's sister, described here as Christ's mother's sister, we think that was probably a woman known as Salome. And she was the mother of John and James. John, who was here at the cross, and James, his brother, known as the sons of thunder. She was the woman who had asked Jesus to give her boys... a a, a good seat at the great table in the great coming kingdom. So she had her flaws, but here she was in devotion to Jesus there. She was the sister of Mary. And we find, of course, first in the narrative is Mary, the mother of Jesus. So Mary takes special place here. And so what do we know about Mary? Well, we know, of course, that she was the miraculous mother of Jesus, chosen by God, to uh, be the mother and the woman in whom the Holy Spirit conceived Jesus. We know all the beautiful birth stories, particularly from the Gospel of Luke, about the angels visiting her and the marvelous conception she experienced and the birth of Christ and everything that surrounded it. Beyond that, we don't know a lot. We know that she raised Jesus Christ in his human life, the God-man, She was the first to kiss his forehead on that wonderful morning of his birth. She must have been the first also to reach out and hold his toddler hands as he reached up to balance himself. And she led him across the kitchen floor in his first toddler steps toward a beaming and waiting Joseph on the other side of the kitchen. Oh, she was part of all of that. She was the first to teach him to form words And then to form sentences, she taught God to talk. Can you imagine such a thing? She sent him off to school when he became of age, and she was the first one to see his his excited shoulders and depart around the corner as he ran with the other boys to his first day. She lived with him, and he lived with her as a devoted son, We know the church tradition tells us and the the scriptures indicate that Joseph, Mary's husband and Christ's earthly father, uh, had died at some point in the early life of Christ. And so he, as the oldest son, took care of his mother and she was in his presence and he was there in their home in Nazareth until he was into his 20s. And finally, right around the age of 30, Mary watched him as he left Nazareth and he journeyed to a place called Bethany by the Jordan, where a man named John the Baptist was baptizing people. And John the Baptist was called from the Old Testament prophecies to introduce Jesus on the river shore there as the Lamb of God who would take away the sin of the world. And on that day, Jesus entered into his ministry. And he entered into a new relationship with his mother, we're going to find out, as her future savior. So she lost sight of him that day as he headed out from Nazareth to meet John and start his ministry. And we don't know much more about her life. We do know that she occurs in the gospel narrative twice before the cross work. She was there at the wedding in Cana, which took place early in Christ's ministry as he just began to teach and gather his disciples. And that was the wedding where they ran out of wine. Do you remember the story And she she came to Jesus and said, they've run out of wine and maybe with a little wink in her eye, knowing that he was special and maybe hinting at him for a miracle. And he said to her, woman, what has this to do with me? For my hour has not yet come. So she was there at that time. Jesus, by the way, did perform the miracle. It was the first of many to come. She fades away out of the narrative from that point. And then she occurs one other time in the life of Jesus at the height of his healing ministry when he was healing people by the hundreds and into the thousands at Capernaum where they flocked to him day and night. The healing ministry was so great and his teaching ministry so great that people crowded around the house where he was in Capernaum by the thousands. And so there was no room for them to, to crowd into that house. They each came to be healed. And Jesus healed and taught, the scripture says, night and day and night and day. There was not even time to eat. He was under the power of the Holy Spirit, and the compassion of God was pouring out of him, and he would not deny a single person that came. Everyone was healed, all were taught. And in the midst of this intense time, The brothers of Jesus, who didn't believe in him, came and brought Mary to the outside of that house in Capernaum. And the scripture says they came to call him out of the house because the Bible says they thought he was out of his mind. They didn't understand what God was doing. It seemed otherworldly. We don't know, maybe even Mary at this point, in addition to her unbelieving sons, didn't know quite what to make of what was happening to Jesus and through Jesus. But Jesus doesn't come out of the house. Instead, he looks to the people in the house and he says, who are my mother and brothers? All of you who know and do the will of God are my mother and brothers. So he was indicating a great and spiritual union was taking place that was even more important than earthly relationships. That'll come to play in this story. So that's the end of what we see of Mary until... Some years later, she finds her son again, but now she finds him here on a cross, executed as a criminal on a hill outside Jerusalem. She stood there now and she saw him, oh, differently than in the early days. She stood there and looked up at the the beautiful shoulders of her son, shoulders she had stroked and adored so lovingly now shredded by the Roman whip in rivers of blood. The eyebrows that she'd kissed so lovingly over the years were now hidden by a rude crown of thorns jammed down upon them. Bloody. The voice that she had looked forward to every morning and adored so much in its tones and its truth as she looked up was silent, under suffering. I can confidently say that no human being on that hill other than Jesus himself was in deeper agony than Mary must have been. Mary knew she was going to bury her son that day. No deeper agony can come to a human life than that. Her mind must have gone back to the eighth day of Christ's life Luke records it in Luke chapter 2. Where Mary and Joseph excited young parents with their first child who was a son, a double blessing in the life of Israel, not only to be blessed with a child, but your firstborn to be a son. And they knew a special one. The Old Testament law told them that they had to come to Jerusalem to the great temple on the eighth day of his life, and they had to declare his name to the, to the priest there. And Joseph, obediently, in obedience to the angel, said, His name is Yeshua, Jesus, God saves. And the priest would then bless this son. As they went through the ceremony, an old man who was a prophet slipped up to them in the crowd, and he asked if he could gaze upon the face of their little son. This old man's name was Simeon, and he had waited for the Messiah all of his life. And the Holy Spirit had appeared to Simeon and said, Behold, when you see this young couple, they are carrying the Son of God, the Savior of the world, the Messiah to come. And this old prophet was blessed but burdened because he had a word to share with this couple. And Luke 2, verse 34 and 35 say this, And Simeon blessed them. And said to Mary, his mother, he looked her directly in her eyes. And he said, behold, this child is appointed for the fall and rising of many in Israel. What did he mean? This is going to be the savior of the world, but his message is going to divide the world. Many will fall at his message and choose not to believe that they're sinners or that his cross can do anything for them. They'll defy him, but some will rise in faith And they'll become part of an eternal family of God. Oh, he's appointed for the fall and rising of many in Israel. And for a sign that is opposed, his teaching, his message, his gospel, even his cross would be opposed by most all the way through his life. And then he said this, looking deeply into Mary's eyes. And a sword will pierce through your own soul. Mary didn't understand what that meant until Good Friday morning. And as she stood there watching her son, tortured and in the midst of the cruelest death imaginable, she knew that the sword was being drawn slowly through her soul. And she experienced it in the deepest of ways. Now, in the mercy and the goodness of God, Mary would not experience that alone. (laughs) For God had convicted one of the disciples, his name was John, who had run like the others, to come back, to come close, in fact, to defy the Roman guards and the fear of arrest and to stand at the foot of the cross along with Mary This was the disciple talked about in verse 26, the disciple whom Jesus loved. Who was this? This was John himself, the writer of the gospel, who was so honored to have known Christ that he never wanted his own name to be mentioned in his gospel. So he simply called himself the disciple whom Jesus loved. Who was John? Well, as I said earlier, his mother... Salome was probably standing nearby as well. His mother was probably the sister of Mary. And so it's very possible that John was the cousin of Jesus, one of many. But it's probable that at family celebrations when they were both young boys, John and Jesus had seen each other and known each other by name and maybe played out back while the adults were having dinner. Years later, when Jesus went to the River Jordan, John was there And he heard Jesus described as the Lamb of God. And John was one of the very first to follow after Jesus and to begin to learn from him and to follow him and give up all to learn more. And the Bible says he ended up being the closest disciple to Jesus. He was there in the upper room, leaning back on the the chest of Christ, sitting closest to him and asking him the deepest questions. John was indeed the disciple whom Jesus loved in a deep and intimate way. He was there now by God's sovereign plan to be next to Mary, but he didn't understand what was going to happen in the next few minutes. So they stand there together under long moments, perhaps an hour or more as Jesus suffers the beginning physical decline of his body and he prepares himself to receive the wrath of God. And those are long moments where not anything was said by Jesus. And then Jesus speaks, and here we begin to see the greatness that they saw. Look with me further. How he spoke and what he did showed two magnificent things about him. The first is that it showed he was the majestic God. God in human flesh there on the cross. You see, how he spoke is amazing, not because of what he said, but because of what he didn't say. Put yourself in that moment as a human being. If you were on a cross like that, you knew there was no destination but death. This was your final hour. You were in supreme physical agony that was only going to worsen until your heart collapsed in failure and you finally were not able to breathe any longer you were there in ultimate human disdain and despair. Everyone had abandoned you and was now standing and mocking you. You were were alone. You were in supreme agony. And you knew that death was coming. Any other human being, any other man would have been completely absorbed with his own pain and his own fear and his own despair. And he would have called out when he saw his mother there, certainly any other man would have have called out, mother, mother, and would have called out to her in his agony and in his loneliness, and he would have sought comfort from her, and he would have sought sympathy from her because he would have been consumed with his suffering. But oh, this was no ordinary man. This was the God man. He has not one thought of himself because, you see, he is God Almighty completing a death that he himself ordained. He is in masterful control. He acts not in that moment looking for sympathy, but from majesty. You've got to understand that Jesus Christ said many times as he predicted his suffering and his death, he said, no one takes my life from me. I lay it down and I will take it up again because he was God. This was not a tragedy on a hilltop. This was not a miscarriage of justice on Calvary. This was not a terrible, terrible mistake or an awful, awful moment. This was what God had planned from eternity to pay for your sin and make it possible for you to go to heaven. And he wasn't going to back down now. He was on that cross in supreme majesty. No one was taking his life. He was in perfect control of every hammer swing, of every drop of blood, of every mocking word, and of the wrath that would fall upon him from the heavenly throne room itself. God in control of his own death. Because he knew that he had said many times, the Son of Man has come to give his life as a ransom for many. Including the two who were there at the foot of the cross, gazing up at him, Mary and John. And what he did next defined his awareness of their great need. Go to the text again. He doesn't call out, Mother, he looks down upon her and he says, Woman. Bible scholars for generations have puzzled at that. Why wouldn't he call her mother? Why didn't he? Woman was a somewhat impartial and social greeting. It was a way of just respectfully addressing any woman. It was not familiar. Well, we get a clue in the sense that he had done this since the beginning of his ministry years, When he left her and went to Jordan, things changed. He went to become her savior. In John 2, when she looked at him and and said, they've run out of wine, he didn't address her as mother then. He looked at her and he said, woman, my hour is not yet come. The relationship had altered. He was now her savior going to a cross. And she needed him in in a deep and eternal way. And here now, he doesn't want that to be lost on her. He looks at her and he calls her woman because in that moment, she was just a woman, a lost, sinful woman, separated from the perfection of Christ's father and heading for an eternity without him unless something was done. She had sorrow in her heart over a dying son, but she had a greater risk over her life. She needed to know that this dying son was her savior She didn't need to be caught up in the human sympathy of the moment. She needed to see who was dying there. You see, he called her woman because he wanted her to know that her spiritual belief in him as her savior was more important than her natural relationship with him as her son. Her spiritual lostness was more supreme than her human grief. It was as if he was saying to her, Woman, see me for who I am now. I'm more than your earthly son. I'm your heavenly savior. See me as I'm stretched out on this cross and see me for what I'm doing for you. See me as the savior of your soul. Perhaps Her mind went back to a text that she had memorized as a young Jewish girl that now was being played out before her, Isaiah 53 5. It might have been Jesus looking at her and saying, Woman, understand what's happening before your eyes. I am the one. Who is now pierced. For your transgressions. I am the one. Who is now crushed. For your iniquities. I am the one. Upon whom the chastisement is coming. From the heavenly throne room. The wrath of God. Is going to fall on me. To bring you peace. I am the one. By whose wounds. You can be healed. Know that I'm your savior. And believe in all that I'm doing. Well, as I said, a lot of us go through a process of seeing and understanding our sin and his saving work before we fully step out in faith and understand who he is and what he did. And I don't know where Mary was in that process Maybe she already knew from early days and it was just being affirmed before her eyes. Or maybe in that moment, both she and John saw in crystal clarity the suffering and the redemption, and they were adopted immediately into God's eternal family at the foot of the cross. No one knows, but we do know this, that some days later, according to Acts 1.14, Mary and John were there with the other disciples in the upper room. Praying to meet and to live for the ascended Jesus Christ. We know that somehow she had come to faith. Somehow she had come to full belief. Maybe it happened there. We don't know. But I'm certain that the majesty was what she needed to see. He was the majestic God. Well, there was more. And this comes into the words that Jesus now directed to John. They show that he was not only the majestic God in that moment, but he was the perfect man. As Jesus gazes down at his mother, he sees the sword running through her soul. As a man and as a son, he grieves for her. As a perfect man and as a perfect son, he ministers to her pain and to the loneliness that he knows she's she's now going to face because her son is going through this death experience. He knew all that was going through her mind. and, And so he says, woman, behold your son. And he meant for her eyes to go to John standing next to her. You see, as the oldest son after Joseph had died, as I've said, Jesus had cared for Mary all the way through her life. and We know that Jesus had brothers, their names were James and Jude. And we know also that the Bible says at this point they had not believed in him. They had been skeptics all through his ministry. In fact, they were not there on crucifixion day. Can you imagine that? How distant they were from Jesus on that morning that they didn't even bother to come to comfort and watch their brother in his agony later they would meet him as resurrected lord and all that would change in a moment and james and jude would go on to become faithful followers but at this point joseph was gone his brothers the brothers of jesus disbelieved and were not there and mary needed someone to be entrusted to she needed another arm to lean on in the days and years ahead And they needed to be someone who not only loved her, but loved Jesus. And there, of course, by the sovereign plan of God, was John beside her. Jesus, perfectly selfless to the end, was the perfect man. He obeyed the great commandment in that moment. What's the great commandment? Love God with all your heart, soul, and strength. That's why he was going to take the wrath of God, to honor the request of the Father and love others as yourself. And he loved Mary as he would have loved himself, and he put her into the care of John. Oh, what a mighty and perfect man he was, obeying the command perfectly. He was perfectly selfless to the end and he was also perfectly sinless to the end because you see, he also then obeyed a commandment that he himself had written. When the Trinity themselves inspired the Holy Scripture, together they wrote a commandment, one of the 10 commandments. It's in Exodus 20, verse 12, and it says, honor your father and your mother. And Jesus in this moment fulfills the commandment that he wrote and he honors his own commandment. And he honors his mother and he cares for her. Why is that important? Because the Bible says that Jesus Christ had to be a perfect man and keep the law in every way perfectly all the way through his death on that cross because a perfect and spotless lamb had to be sacrificed and he had to be the perfect man. Aren't you glad he obeyed God all the way to the very end? Do you realize if Jesus had given up in the torment of the cross for just one second and had lashed out at the Roman centurions with anger, Or let a spirit of unforgiveness or bitterness even cross his heart. His sacrifice would have been meaningless because then he would have been tainted by sin. And he would have not have been a perfect and spotless lamb of God. Not able to die for the sins of the world. But oh, all the way through, even to the bitter end, he completed it without sin. That's why he was able to say at the last moment, it is finished. And here he loves her Perfectly. And so he looks at John and he says, John, behold your mother. That's all he needed to say. John loved him and knew what he was saying. He was saying, take care of her. She's yours to care for now. All of her days. Did you know in that culture at that time, a man's dying request had the power of a written will? And in that moment, John didn't need anything more. He knew what he was called to do. And look at the end of the verse. And from that hour, the disciple took her to his own home. We don't know how long Mary lingered at the cross, but we know she didn't leave it alone. She was helped forth from that place by the loving arms of John. Now, we don't know all that happened, but church tradition says that Mary lived in John's home in Jerusalem. We do know he lived there and had a large home. It's recorded in the Gospels and that she stayed there with him throughout the life of the early church and she may have actually journeyed to Ephesus where he became the pastor and leader of the churches in Asia Minor until her death. Behold your mother, cared for by the perfect man. Well, let me bring this to our lives, the difference this can make for us. I'm so glad my Bible says Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. He's the same majestic God today, risen in heaven, and he's the same perfect man. Oh, he's man in heaven today, in his perfect glorified body. The nail prints are still there to plead for you and I. And he's there in all of his human experience, the Bible says, to know what it's like to be human. And so I know two things. He's still the majestic God. That means I can trust him as Savior today, just like Mary might have done on that hillside. Hebrews chapter 2, verse 14 tells me, Since therefore the children, human beings, humanity, share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise partook of the same things. He was born as a man into time that through death, death on that hill, he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is the devil, and deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. By dying, he conquered death. He rose to prove it was finished. And today, if you don't know Jesus Christ, but you know that you fear death, you're wondering how you'll face it, Jesus is the answer. He's the majestic God that died for you in your place so that if you trust him as the savior of your soul, you will never face eternal death. He's a majestic God that took care of it all for you. Trust Christ as savior today. But he's also still the perfect man in heaven. He stands not only with that glorified body, but with a a dimension to who he is that understands what it was like to be human. You can know that whatever pain you've gone through and you're going through as a believer, he's been there. And yet he stayed pleasing to God through it all. Hebrews four, fifteen. For we do not have a high priest who's ascended into heaven today. That's talking about Jesus in in heaven right now before the Father. For we do not have a high priest who pleads for us, who was unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace, a throne where Jesus stands for us. The throne of the father before which Jesus bleeds his blood for us. That we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. Oh, believer, whatever you're going through, maybe you've fallen in sin. You're struggling to come out of it. You'll find mercy there (laughs) because Jesus knows what it's like to be tempted. He didn't sin, but he tasted all that temptation is. And therefore, there's a dimension of mercy that he has for you that you can't imagine. But then there's also grace. As you struggle to come out of sin, there's grace and forgiveness for it all. Because he finished it all on Calvary, on that hill, on that cross. Abundant mercy and grace and power to help you in your time of need. What a majestic God and a perfect man. That's the Lord. That's who they saw that morning and that's who is present with you right now through the preaching of his word and the movement of the Holy Spirit in your heart of hearts. He's a majestic God and a merciful Savior. I was just worshiping him at the end of preparing this message and as I finished jotting my notes a song came to my mind that I've enjoyed from the worship group Selah. Here were the lyrics that floated through my heart. Wonderful, merciful Savior, precious Redeemer and friend, who would have thought that a lamb could rescue the souls of men? Oh, you rescue the souls of men. Oh, mighty, infinite Father, faithfully loving your own, here in our weakness you find us falling before your throne. Oh we're falling before your throne. You can fall before that throne today and find him as your Savior. And if you know him you can fall before that throne today and find him full of mercy.